Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Gingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is June 2nd, 2023. Summer is finally arriving, and we're seeing some longtime controversial issues in the pharma world begin to heat up. First up is insurance coverage for Alzheimer's drugs. Kathy, CMS gave an update yesterday that seemed like news, or maybe not. Um, what do we know now? <laughs> it was a little underwhelming. Um, it's certainly a, <laughs> certainly a hot topic, so it got a lot of attention. But yeah, I mean, CMS announced yesterday a couple of details um, related to its requirement that um, Alzheimer's drugs, even those with traditional approvals, will... Um, patients taking those drugs will have to enroll in a registry in order to be covered. Um, you know, this is a really a precedent-setting decision, and the statement they issued uh, yesterday, you know, demonstrates that they are still committed to following through despite all the criticism that they've gotten. But the thing that the things that they announced, the things that they were, were new in the um, statement are that it has CMS has established a web-based portal for doctors to use to provide information in the registry. Um, and the other thing that they suggested is that other healthcare organizations will be announcing their own registries at some point soon. Um, you know, they they feel the need to do this, I think, at this point because there could be a drug approved in, in a month, um, Lakembi. And so uh, there have been a lot of questions about, you know, what CMS envisions about this registry, how it's supposed to work, how burdensome it's going to be. And, you know, time is really getting short. So the details about what they want in the, um, you know, what want physicians to report uh, in this portal are still to be determined. And that's a big question mark um, in stakeholders' minds. It's hard to know still how burdensome this will be and how much it might affect access. Um, CMS Administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lashur uh, said recently um, at a hearing that these would not be onerous requirements. They don't expect that it's going to have a major impact on access, but, you know, that's still to be determined. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, the one example that they hold up um, for a successful registry for a fully approved product is one that involves valve replacements. Um, it's about 10 years old, and there has been a registry for that, which, you know, CMS feels was a success. I think the fact that 10 years later, you know, that this um, CED coverage with evidence development requirement is still in place sort of raises questions about how, how successful it's been. But um, Scott Gottlieb had some interesting tweets this morning about, you know, the CED announcement. He was very critical about it, but he also pointed out that the, the TAVR T-A-V-R, trans-aortic valve replacement, uh, CED involves an 11-page um, form that doctors have to fill out, and doctors also have to pay $25,000 to enroll <laughs> in registries. So that doesn't sound too appealing. That that does sound like it would be, you know, sort of definitely burdensome. Um, so it 
you know, it really remains to be seen. I guess the the last thing, you know, I'll, I'll say is that this is, you know, again, this is something really new. CMS has never required something like this for an approved drug. And, um, you know, they they are obviously trying to respond to criticisms, but, you know, we'll see how far they go. Yeah, I guess the 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 lack of information about the registry, you know, kind of that that kind of raised some red flags for me too. I mean, it, you know, mm-hmm. just because we write about REMS requirements all the time, and mm-hmm. you know, the burden that REMS put on providers is a common criticism mm-hmm. of you know to the fact that they're you know a lot of them are revised over and over again because. Um, you know, they just can't, providers just don't want to be bothered with, with them anymore. And, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, if you're going to set up a registry for something like this, it, you know, there's going to be multiple organizations looking to open them too, which I thought was a little odd. Um, you know, and maybe that's just commonplace, but if you have competition over which, which one you're going to be in, are they going to work together? Is the data going to be able to be easily combined to get the information they want to get if it's if the registry is supposed to be simple and basic is it going to have data that they can act on <laughs> you know that, yeah. that i mean yeah. I, I guess that there's still a whole lot lots and lots of questions that i think need to be answered and it seems like we're running out of time to answer them yeah i mean it, i think um it could be that this portal might be a way for um, CMS to collect just very basic information, maybe more oriented toward safety. Um, they might rely on other, say, large healthcare systems with their own registries to provide details that would shed light on outcomes, you know, improvement on cognition, that sort of thing. Now, how they would, how they would, you know, divide that is is um, hard to imagine, but it it could be that that's sort of what they have in mind. Yeah, it seems like, you know, um, know, one of the reasons why CMS maybe did this, made this announcement yesterday is because they, Derek, um, like you were saying, in terms of the timing of all this, they'd been getting pressure from members of Congress and congressional hearings about, you know, progress on setting these registries up and how easy it would be once, you know, an expected um, what can be approval comes for people to quickly get prescribed the drug because of the registry burden. So I think they wanted to sort of demonstrate they were, you know, they're making progress on this now. They're not going to wait to approval for approval to start the planning. Um, so we'll see if that sort of satisfies them and how, you know, how smooth potentially, you know, if Lakemi gets approved, um, how uptake, I guess, is impacted by, you know, registry establishment. I, I was just going to say, ESI has been pretty careful in their statements about this whole situation. Um, you know, they just emphasize how they're working with CMS and, you know, how they're committed to, you know, enhancing access, that sort of thing. Lilly, on the other hand, has been much more adamantly opposed to any coverage with evidence development um, requirement. So I don't know, it's possible that there, ESI knows something <laughs> about how easy or, you know, how difficult it, it will be. Um, but we'll see. Oh, I was going to uh, ask Kathy, what do you think the impact will be of any potential stories of people being denied or unable to access the uh, 
um, a product after sort of traditional FDA approval because of a registry issue. Uh, you know, how much of this uh, registry announcement is a uh, complete retreat by by CMS in terms of you know not admitting that there's uh, no longer coverage with evidence development, and how much of it is a genuine uh, insistence on still gathering data that if uh, physicians don't sort of follow the proper protocols, they won't be able to, uh, to participate in. Uh, you know, do do you expect mm-hmm. kind of the um, data requirements to perhaps be further reduced if there are sort of more uh, anecdotes or uh, um, information coming to light about various uh, um, uh, inaccessibility uh, of the uh, of the product due to registry issues? Yeah, you know that's a good question. I'm not I'm not sure, you know, what the precedent might be for CMS to kind of you know ratcheting back some of the requirements for registries. Um, it's definitely be something to look into. I'm sure that patient groups will play up, you know, scenarios where um, patients who you know are eligible for treatment are denied because they can't, you know, they can't find a physician who is engaged in a registry. Um, And who knows, I mean, I suppose there could be, you know, there could be litigation or something like that that would would follow. But I don't think this is a, I don't think CMS is, you know, sort of indicating a a complete retreat from the CED altogether. Um, I know you're, you're thinking, is it in effect a retreat if, if the elements are something that doctors would collect anyway? I suppose that's possible. Can they, can they set this up in a month? I mean, do they even know how? I mean, is 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 the registry ready to go right now? Did they did they indicate that? They said they they said they have one, but it, that's okay. that's another good question. I I don't know. I mean, they didn't provide details about it, so um, it does seem like a lot. Um, and I guess I would assume that Lakembi would would get off to a slow start. Um, well, not that it's already it's already approved and it's out in the market to an extent, but um, you know I, I don't ex- expect there's going to be a, like a huge boom in in sales, you know, once it gets approved, um, and that this would take some time to still pull together. Well, Sarah, you speaking of registries and setting this up, you you wrote about how the VA is handling these Alzheimer's drugs. I mean, it, I mean. They feel like they're kind of in line with CMS, but even though the narrative doesn't suggest that, like, what what did we learn from them? Right. So um, I think kind of due to sort of statements um, some of the companies have put out, there had been a lot of sort of media reports, particularly on Lakembi, that seemed to suggest that, you know, the VA was maybe being more generous than CMS and, you know, providing more access to Lakembi under accelerated approval than Medicare has. And um, the VA, um, the head of sort of their PBM system, um, spoke at an an HHS meeting and was sort of making the case that, you know, there's been a lot of confusion um, about how they cover the drugs. And I think part of it stems from this issue that so basically the VA has to cover all drugs, but they can basically place drugs in what's called non-formulary status. And in a lot of situations, if you said non-formulary, you would that would equate to not not covered essentially, I think, in people's minds. But um, the VA does offer some coverage of both actually Adjuhelm and um, Lakembi. And she actually also made the case that, you know, really the 
coverage of both drugs by the VA is very similar. So she was sort of dismissing that notion that, you know, they're offering, you know, better coverage of one drug over the other as well. But basically, I mean, and she she seemed to suggest that really their decision is quite similar to CMS. It's just that the VA has some unique ways of maybe handling it that makes it seem like there's a bit wider coverage because they're a closed system. So, you know, the VA um, can sort of mandate their doctors take particular training um, to prescribe the drug, you know, and kind of ensure that the doctors actually follow through with that in a way Medicare would have more difficulty doing. You know, they're conducting different types of trainings for staff who administer it. Um, you know, they likened this sort of perspective evaluation that they have, which I think some might see as a little bit more like a registry, but essentially to CMS's clinical trial requirement. Um, and basically just said because, again, they're sort of a closed system, they have the ability to kind of collect the types of data CMS now feels like they need to collect through a clinical trial. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, too, is they sort of seem like they do a lot of like adverse event tracking and they can both like quickly flag FDA, but also kind of quickly reverse their decision in a way Medicare might not be able to if, you know, they get some new flags, you know, so I think they seem like one of the reasons maybe they feel more comfortable with how they're handling it is because they have that ability to flip the switch a little bit quicker um, than Medicare does because of safety. And the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is they're also, um, because they're so concerned about safety, really, um, they um, are not letting any pharmaceutical sales reps come in and promote the drug. Um, although, again, they seem to suggest this could be a temporary thing. And once they sort of are confident, their staff is kind of trained up and knows how to use the drug um, and, and has sort of gotten the messaging from the VA, they might um, relax that moving forward. Yeah, I thought that was, um, it, it's interesting to think about the comparison uh, in the two decisions between the two agencies. And yeah, the critics have said, well, here, you know, two agencies in the same administration that are reaching different, completely different decisions. And the the thing about it, the VA being a closed system is pretty important because, you know, they can collect the kind of information that, as you said, that CMS feels is missing um, just in the ordinary course of, of the way they operate. Um, and of course, CMS doesn't do that. I mean, so so the, the issue about, you know, say a registry or something really is completely different, you know, and it's much more burdensome um, on, the CM, um, uh, yeah, on the CMS side. I have heard though, I mean, it seems like the VA could actually provide some pretty valuable information through its its coverage and its um, you know uh, data collection, um, and and that could be something that that would sort of help help CMS. Yeah, we we're all hoping that we get some uh, cross agency collaboration. I think on this yeah. one, I mean, yeah. the the VA is actually really good about re, you know reusing their their um, their their online. Uh, medical records database to do research. I mean, they've they've done. A, I've, I know I've seen a bunch of those types of studies where it's contributed to various types of to information on on, on all kinds of treatments. Very interesting. Well, thank you, thank you, Kathy and um, and Sarah. Next, we're going to discuss the FDA's newest patient information document. 
It's called Patient Medication Information, and it's intended to provide some of the most important information about a drug on one page. FDA has been studying this idea for years and issued a proposed rule this week that would replace medication guides with PMI. This document is intended to have what you would expect, indications, administration, safety information, and likely in black text with a white background. I like that it's going to include the phonetic spelling of the drug name so we all know definitively how it's supposed to be pronounced, which is for those of you who are wonks know that that is not always clear. But the document may not include all of the product's indications. It's also not intended to be comprehensive or replace patient counseling or the full prescribing information. And because we're doing this through the rulemaking process, it could be years before this is finalized and the requirement would go into effect. And after that, sponsors will have another year or more to submit their PMI documents for approval. So for you all, I'm, I'm curious how you think this is going to go over. Is this an additional tool that's going to be good for patients? Is it going to be overly burdensome for sponsors? Could this wind up just being another piece of paper that you don't read when you pick up your prescription at the pharmacy? I'm, I'm going to go with your uh, your option C there. You're optimistic. I think it's a, uh, a noble uh, um, uh, endeavor and, uh, you know, the, the challenges as you've laid them out is we're going to, how do you provide all the essential information, but nothing extraneous or distracting or confusing, you know, is a, uh, um, an interesting uh, uh, challenge and a different uh, uh, development puzzle than, than, uh, um, you know, the pharmacies are, uh, pharma, um, pharmaceutical companies are usually used to uh, um, solving, but uh, um, I'm sure they're up to that uh, um, challenge. It's just, uh, um, as you outlined, it's uh, not never going to have everything that uh, everyone would need, and it's uh, um, probably uh, not going to uh, um, enhance people's uh, experience with uh, um, with medications once they once they pick them up. Even though it's a uh, um, a worthwhile uh, um, uh, effort, I suppose, to sort of kind of to uh, to improve what uh, um, what you get when you uh, walk away from the pharmacy. Yeah, I, I had to um, admit, I was wondering what's driving that exercise. Um, does FDA have information about patients being confused or, you know, is this an effort to avoid medication errors or kind well, of what's part of the, behind this? Part of the issue is that nobody reads the medication guides because uh -huh. they're, you know, I mean, you've seen them. They're, you know, I mean, they're pages and uh -huh. pages and pages. And, uh -huh. and I'm not talking about the label. I'm talking about the the, the patient the the one that's supposed to be for the person taking the pills. Oh, uh huh. Um, they're 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 pages and pages long, so you know unless you're told or you're really interested, you're I mean, they're not reading them, and so they're trying to get they're trying to come up with a way that has the basic information that you need, you know, before you take the pills, and like you know, kind of what to do if something happens, or what to you know the kind of you know side effects that you might expect. And, you know, the, to show that those are okay. And if, you know, say like call 911, if you, you know, or call your healthcare provider, if you, you know, these don't, you know, dissipate and things like that. I mean, that that's kind of like what they're, they're trying to streamline that whole process mm -hmm. a little bit. But mm -hmm. again, it, you know, you still have to get people to read it, number one. And, you know, that's, this is the old newspaper reporter and me coming out, but I, I still wonder how they're going to get everything on one page. It, it, you know, I mean, there, you know, if, if you read the story, we'll, we'll have it linked in the show notes um, on on our website. But there is a an example and it's 
it's they they put it all in there that you know that there there's a minimum type size you have to meet you can't have like pictures or you know graphics or anything like that so i i think it's going to be i think it's going to be hard to get everything on the page that you need to get on there especially since the fda could grant a waiver but they said waiving the one page limit's going to be rare mm-hmm. and you know i mean the other thing is, is that like they said that like you know, you can summarize the indications if they, you know, because there are some of these drugs that have lots and lots of them. Well, does that mean you're going to have to design multiple PMIs to for to so you have so if somebody gets gets it for an indication that wouldn't be on the normal summary that they you know, do you do you have to do that? I don't I, yeah. I don't know. And, and all of a sudden you're saying, OK, now I'm designing multiples of these. They are FDA already said if you have different if you if your product has different kinds of administration like if there's a injection and a and a pill formulation that could mean you need two of them one for each formulation because you have to explain both of those um you know it i i i'm i'll be curious to see how industry reacts to this because you know i could see the you know we just talked about burden i could see the burden argument coming up again yeah, one uh, uh, nice thing in terms of uh, reduced burden is that they're not going to have to test these things, at least uh, um, under the proposed yeah. rule as it came out, uh, in terms of, sort of, kind of con- uh, patient comprehension or uh, whatever. And uh, uh, that is sort of certainly a, uh, um, a re- re- reduction from sort of potential burden that they could face. But it's also a perhaps indication that sort of, uh, to my mind, nobody's entirely clear through kind of what patients actually need to know about their medications and sort of kind of how to summarize that and sort of what what would you even compare that testing to some sort of kind of ideal knowledge about a product that a, a customer should uh, should have before they uh before they take it so i uh, um i think kathy's point about sort of kind of what uh essential utility of this is going to be is a uh, is a good one it's uh, it's un- un- unclear at this point yeah and the, and the thing about consumer testing is you need to put a yet at the end of that sentence because <laughs> fda said we aren't convinced you need it now, but there's they invited comments on the rule and you know saying like if there's a reason to require consumer testing, please tell us. So I'm sure somebody has a reason that these need to be tested. And you know, once they come out, I'm guessing people are gonna, you know, start testing them. <laughs> I would like to see a test where basically like you actually like hand people these packages at the pharmacy and like hand them the old one and the new one, you know, yeah, hand different it. people and actually not just even see like, like just <laughs> see how many people even look at them, right? Or yeah, yeah. how many people in their, behavior, right. you know, I mean, because I would wager, I guess most people, what they pay attention to is like that little thing sometimes at the top of the, um, the like all the prescription information that tells you, oh, how many times a day to take, you know, that sort of thing. And which is also usually on like your pill bottle or something. So, you know, my initial thought as you were speaking was like, I I would wonder really to get people to read it, you'd have to essentially put like the really essential stuff has to almost be on, you know, the actual whatever device or pill bottle or something that you actually get your medication out of, I guess. I'm just skeptical of how many people really, um, regardless of how short or whatever, you, you know, you make it unless there's some sort of direction they have to follow, like would just sort of read additional accompanying information. The requirements seem to sort of be designed to make it uh, uninteresting that you know, it has to be black and white. You can't have any uh, uh, graphics or images or anything like that. So it's not uh, <laughs> not a uh, not an appealing uh, uh, piece of paper that uh, that's going to be produced. 
Well, and, and again, you have to, you know, we, we can't, I, I, I'm guilty of this, is you can't think about this this being completely in a vacuum and there's nothing else that you know about the about whatever you're, whatever it is you're taking and you have to get everything you need based on this. It's, it's not intended to replace patient counseling and, you know, the pharmacist will ask you, you know, do you understand what you're doing, what we're giving you here and, you know, they can provide, you know, give you some information on what what you should look for and and how to take it and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's one of several tools that remain in the toolbox. The question is, how you know is it going to be like a lot of the other tools we know are in the toolbox, or is it going to be is it going to have a, a better or, you know get to see some more um, some more usage? Finally, we're going to return to COVID nineteen vaccines. The move to the annual vaccine updates is coming later this year, and the International Coalition of Drug Regulatory Authorities announced this week that the preference for next winter's COVID vaccine should be one strain from the XBB family. That's a significant update in part because the FDA recently said that there was a concern that regulators can mandate different vaccine compositions based on the variants circulating in their regions, which could make manufacturing and access difficult. The coalition also said that vaccine updates could be approved based on manufacturing and quality information, as well as lab data, as long as post-market quality, safety, efficacy, and immunogenicity data is collected. So I'm curious, this is an, you seem like, you feel like this is an improvement, right? That this is a good thing? I, At least process-wise? <laughs> I, I guess two things that stuck, stood out to me, I, I'm not necessarily going to weigh in on a necessarily good, bad, or what have you um, off the bat, but two things that stood out were, one, that there seems to be more um, effort on um, this booster update to have international alignment. Um, so the last set of boosters, um, the U.S. and, you know, Europe and other parts of the world didn't went in different directions in terms of what variant, you know, um, was included in the bivalent vaccines. And then I think like um, some places in, in Europe, I believe, like approved a different one than the U.S. and then also eventually cleared the other one. Um, and, you know, some people I remember during sort of that time period and felt like it's it's more confusing sort of situation for people and could potentially, you know, again, have some kind of impact on up, uptake if you're, you know, you're like, well, why is one country, you know, feel we should have this, you know, variant over the other? And so that they felt like it's helpful to have that international alignment. The other thing I did notice, which I imagine is quite useful to the companies, um, and but it will be interesting to see like how if FDA sort of follows through with this, um, you know, how the various advisory committee meetings and, you know, sort of the outside of FDA scientists and so forth react to this. But it looks like they're not they're thinking they're not going to require um, like really any sort of like immunogenicity studies and so forth ahead of the next, you know, batch of updates, which seems, I think, has generated controversy in the past well, in terms of whether you we do or don't need them. So I think that'll be interesting to see reaction to that. I have to admit some surprise that uh, we're moving away from uh, uh, bivalent and back to a uh, monovalent. If you look at uh, flu vaccines, we're now at uh, quadvalent, uh, if you will, uh, um, annual uh, vaccinations. And, uh, you know, perhaps uh, um, COVID uh, just sort of kind of uh, has a more Predominant strain uh, um, uh, uh, presentation in terms of sort of kind of what's what's circulating at any given time, but uh, 
uh, I would think that's where kind of there would be a, a push to sort of at least have uh, uh, two like uh, um, like we had before. And maybe that's not the um, the original strain plus a new one. Maybe it's two new ones. But uh, that uh, that surprised me from the announcement, um, uh, at least uh, from my sort of kind of uh, non uh, you know professional virologist uh, vantage point. <laughs> And of course, there still is the question about Novavax, the manufacturer of the protein-based COVID vaccine. Uh, that company has a very small market share compared to the mRNA, mRNA shots from Pfizer and Moderna, and it can't manufacture the vaccines as quickly as the other as the other sponsors, which is a problem for the fall vaccine fall fa- fall vaccination campaign. But the FDA doesn't want to doesn't want an alternative platform to disappear because it may prove useful down the road. So now we're at this, we're at the point where, you know, how do we keep them in the fold? And the company told us this week or told us that it was manufacturing multiple candidates now. And in, and then once the strain is selected, it's going to focus on that one. Yeah. I'm curious how you all think this is going to play out. I know, you know, no one wants anyone to, to go away or give up or anything like that, but if, you know, I'm 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 wondering kind of what the strategy, what you think the strategy is for Novavax going forward. Is this could they is this like a price? Could it be come down to a pricing issue? Is it you know, is there some other way they can compete here in you know at least in the U.S. You do wonder how they're going to support their manufacturing and and operations if they if they have so few sales, um, unless they get some kind of I don't know you know, advanced purchase or something like that from, from the government, it doesn't seem sustainable, really. Yeah, I mean, I would think and to really, you know, change their trajectory in terms of COVID-19, they would have to somehow have a product they could prove was actually doing something better than um, the other v- vaccines, right? And I remember actually going back to before, um, the strains for the bivalent vaccine was picked, they were trying to make the case that even f- with their prototype vaccine, that that it was, you know, sort of had this universal like quality and that maybe it was offered something different than the mRNA vaccines in terms of um, handling other variants. But it, it seems to me like that would be the strategy that would shift people's minds. Otherwise, I think people are just going to kind of get what they're comfortable and used to. And in some cases, I'm not sure like what pharmacies or doctor's offices will even stock the product. So I'm guessing, I mean, I'm not sure you're necessarily going to have always have a choice to go to, you know, a place and pick of the three. So it seems like they'd really have to be able to make the case. And I mean, certainly the U.S. has interests, right, in next gen vaccines and vaccines that could could offer something better than the mRNA vaccines seem to offer in terms of like breath and durability. But I mean, it does seem like at this point, it just like, again, there's nothing wrong with the Novavax vaccine, right, compared to the other vaccines. They just sort of fell victim of being too late to the game here. But it seems like to shift that momentum, you're they're going to have to come up with some selling point. And to do that, it seems like they're going to have to have data to back that up. And I'm not sure how feasible it would be for them to to get that data. Yeah, it's it, it you know in a lot of ways covid is you know covid vaccination is is very different than than normal vaccines we're used to getting. I mean, you know, I I still remember the brand of the 
COVID vaccine that I got. I mean, I remember we used to brag about it, you know, who got what, you know, what, which one did you get? Like with, with flu vaccine, I have, I have no clue. You know, I've got, I got a bunch of vaccine. I got a bunch of vaccinations when my daughter was born. I have no idea what brand they were. And if we're going to kind of this annual, like kind of flu vaccine model with COVID, you know, that might, you know, we could end up that, that whole, you know, kind of which one did you get thing is, you know, could really go away to where you, you don't know unless you actually look on the piece of paper, you know, like everyone does when they get their vaccine, you know, <laughs> you know, to see what, which brand you got. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. And, and you know, I, and I get, they want to keep, you know, I totally understand you, you don't want to just rely on one platform, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'll be curious to see how this, you know, what happens here going forward. Yeah, I guess that's like going back to what I think you or Kathy mentioned on price, I guess I do wonder is like, is there a way for them to compete then on on price if people just stop paying attention? And again, the places where people get them, just assume people just come in and say, I want a, a COVID vaccine. And it, it, is if, you know, my COVID boosters, if there's no, could they somehow, you know, benefit from that if people aren't thinking so much about what product they got anymore or requesting a certain product? you know, could, is there an opening for the, for them there? If we just, right, start thinking about, you know, all approved COVID vaccines are sort of the same and you just get the dosage you need of the one that's available. Well, and that would come down to payers, right? I mean, you'd have to, you know, I mean, flu vaccine for most insured people doesn't cost any money. So, you know, as long as you, it's just going right. to come down to, you know, what your health which, plan what, is. What, yeah. And will they, which one do they, which one do they want you to get? Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 